So this is the final week of our Why Church series, and I have to tell you, this has been one of my favorite studies that we've done. I have ADD, and so my organizational skills are not the best. And because of this, I don't do a great job of, like, pre-planning our sermon series. I listen to church leadership podcasts and stuff, and some of these guys talk about how they go on, like, a retreat weekend, and they plan out, like, 12 to 18 months' worth of sermons. And I'm always like, oh, that sounds amazing. I can't know. I have no idea what I'm doing tomorrow. Like, no, my event horizon is like two hours. That's as far as I can see. Like for me, life is like driving in a fog where, you know, it's like, like I can always see 10 feet in front of me, but I guess if I keep going that direction, I'm going to get there. That's kind of the way uh, I work with time. But, but this is, uh, every once in a while, I feel like in that fog, God just leads us and guides us into the places we need to be, and the Holy Spirit just kind of uh, keeps us moving in the right direction. Because I'd love to be more organized, but I still run out of gas on a regular basis, and I have no idea why. I keep thinking it's going to fix itself. I ran out of gas at a funeral once, and, and Dale, uh, I got to the to the burial site late, and Dale was like, Are you, what happened? Are you okay? I was like, I ran out of gas. And, and uh, I was like, don't ask. And so the conversation moves on, and Dale goes, hold on a second, is your car broken or something? I was like, no, it's fine. And we move on, and Dale goes, well, hold on, whoa, whoa, whoa. Did, did, you look at the ga- did you look at the gas gauge? I was like, no, Dale, I don't know. It, it just happens. He, could, he was like, I don't, how do you run out of gas? Who, who runs out of gas? I was like, I know, I know, I don't know. But, uh, but yeah, I'm not, I'm not that organized. This is one of the reasons I love rhythms and cycles is because – Things just come back around, and you can't get too lost in that kind of system. And it's one of the reasons we kind of loosely follow the church calendar here. It is uh, amazing once you get used to it to see things come back around again, and you get to mark your year and measure your year by these events, and and they're really powerful. Because I can't imagine an endless calendar that just goes on forever. Like when I think of time in a linear fashion, I like have to play Candy Crush for like three hours just to escape the chaos because... I get lost, but cycles and rhythms I can do, and it gives you enough structure that I don't get overwhelmed, but it also leaves us some room for movement and for the Holy Spirit to lead us and guide us, and I feel like this series has been one of those. Like, I had no idea we were going into this series when we did. I just needed to fill four weeks, and I feel like God has um, really kind of had a master plan, so I'm excited, but this also, I'm excited because this feels like the perfect series to kind of preface Lent, to kind of lead us into Lent, because we have spent the last four weeks talking about brokenness, talking about just how bad the world is, how broken the world is, um, but also spending every week talking about how we bring redemption to that brokenness. And so we've kind of sat in the tension between what is and what we know should be, and, and really that's Lent, because Lent is this season where for 40 days we face the darkness. Um, it kind of commemorates Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness, fasting and, and facing temptation. It commemorates the, the Israelites wandering for 40 years in the wilderness just outside the promised land that was given them. And so we spend 40 days kind of in that lost place. But we do it, and we, and we, we talk about harder things, and we, we face the, the tough things in our lives and even our own mortality, but we do it knowing Easter's coming. Like we do it knowing that in just a few four, few weeks there's redemption. And, and so we sit for 40 days in this tension of brokenness 
knowing that it's not going to stay broken, that redemption is right around the corner in it. And so that's kind of what we've done for four weeks, and it's a, a great lead-in because redemption's not about just going to heaven someday. That's a great bonus, but it, we're supposed to live every day in the redemption that Jesus bought for us. And, and so we live in this brokenness, but bringing redemption to this brokenness. So Lent, uh, Lent starts Wednesday. And I hope you'll come to Ash Wednesday and kick that off with us. And just go, go through the journey. Give it a shot. If it seems weird to you and seems one of those things that those weird Christian people do that aren't really on, our, on my team, I challenge you. Come give it a shot. See what you think because it, I think it's a powerful, powerful thing. So everything we've been talking about, how church can help bring redemption to the four broken relationships, comes into play during Lent. We struggle, but we do it with hope, knowing that redemption is coming. Which is a long way of saying that I've really, really enjoyed this series. Okay, let's get started. <laughs> this morning we're going to wrap up the series, and, uh, and then we'll all be here Wednesday night to get the ashes. But uh, the broken relationship we're talking about this morning is one of the toughest ones. Um, so we're going to start with the text. So then he said to the woman, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy, and in pain you will give birth. And you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. And to the man, he said, since you listened to your wife and ate the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed because of you. All your life you will struggle to scratch a living from it. It will grow thorns and thistles for you, though you will eat of its grains. By the sweat of your brow, you will have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made. For you were made from dust, and to dust you will return. So far we've examined the broken relationships between the human and God, which explains so much of the way we live today, the way we hide from our maker. We looked at the broken relationship between the human and the self, which absolutely starts to feel like the scriptures reading our mail, the entrance of shame into the human narrative. We studied last week the broken relationship between the human and the other, which unlocks almost everything we need to know about human history and our relationships between people. And this week we're going to look at the broken relationship between the human and the created order. And this is a tough one because it encompasses so much. Some people call these the curses because of that word when he says cursed is the ground for you. But I consider this a broken relationship. This is much more than a curse. I, I, I think God is just giving Adam and Eve observations of this is the life you've chosen. This is the road you've chosen to go down. I don't even think he's punishing them. He's just explaining to them their choice. And here's what's down the path that you're now on. And wow, there's a lot in this observation. Esther and I started the week kind of brainstorming about all the different directions you could take this sermon because you could do a long series just on this. Obviously, there's this power dynamic between men and women. God describes it. He tells Eve, and you will desire to control your husband but he will rule over you. And this begs the question if this kind of patriarchal dynamic that has dominated history since Adam and Eve is part of the broken relationship, then what might redemption look like? If Christ brought our redemption and the church is supposed to be helping us walk in that redemption, then how is this relational dynamic between a husband and a wife supposed to function? That, that would be a great study, but we're not going to do that this morning. We could do this. He said, to the, the ground is cursed because of you. 
We could definitely look at the relationship between the human and nature. Everything from earthquakes and sunburns and tsunamis and bee stings reflect that nature is not on our side. The very earth seems pitted against us. Have you ever wondered how there is so many different dietary philosophies? Like there's tons of them. Like they're all, get on Facebook for three seconds and somebody's telling you how you should eat. And yet we all die. When there's a man who lives in like 200 and he's still living a life that looks like it's worth living, I will go on that diet. Then I'm, then I'm in. But right now it feels like the food we eat and the air we breathe is killing us. And it has been ever since the garden. We all live in this reality that begs the question, what would redemption look like? Obviously, believing in Jesus doesn't insulate us from sunburns any more than it automatically fixes our relationship with others. But I do believe that as believers, we should be redeeming this relationship to the earth. In my opinion, Christians have more motive than anybody to be environmentalists. Got real quiet. We're the ones who believe that God actually told us it's our job to care for the planet. We were given a world by God himself that he called good and gave us the responsibility to care for that goodness. That was our mandate. That's part of our mandate. We have every reason to care for the environment. And we don't have to do it out of fear or this like paranoia that if we don't do it just right, there's not going to be any planet left for our kids. And we don't have to do it out of fear. We can do it out of love. We can care for the planet because we believe God gave us a good planet and and he gave us charge over it. We can believe in the sovereignty of God, that he's ultimately in control of our planet, and and still believe it's our job to care for the planet. If your kids made you a piece of art, you don't go awesome and crumple it up and throw it away in front of them. That would, you, know, you would never do that. We put it on the fridge. We care for it. We show it. And I feel like sometimes we, we have this awesome piece of art God has given us, and we just trash it. And I don't think that shows respect and love. And so I think we have every reason to be environmentalists. We're not going to talk about that today. We could even talk about some of the weird studies, I guess still about environmentalism, about how healthy gardening is. They say that there's like weird endorphins and things that happen when we touch the earth, almost like we were made of earth and it's good for us to get into it. There's some really cool studies. Look into it. But no, we're not talking about that today. We could talk about our vocation and how the very things that we're created to do were suddenly made difficult. How each and every one of us have this tension between Knowing we're supposed to work and liking to work and yet hating work, like, and everything we have goes around work. Like, if we sit around for two days, we lose our minds, and yet at the same time, we go to work and we hate it, and we come home and we're, I don't want to go back to work. We love our kids more than anything in the world, and yet we all know nothing brings you more pain and stress and anxiety than your children. Nothing. In fact, the only groups that like outnumber the, the vast array of dietary plans is the vast array of parenting strategies. Like, you know what I mean? Like half the world is like, no kid would have gotten away with that in my day. We would have beat them. And the other half is coming up with one study per hour as to why hitting your kids turns them into sociopaths. And, and we fight about it. And Like there's a right way. It's almost like we all know it's not supposed to be this hard. I can just find the right way. It would be much, much easier. It's like we're biologically driven to work and make babies. And those two things generate 95% of all the stress in our life. We could discuss how because of the redemptive work of Jesus, the effort we put into our work and our children has eternal meaning. Because it's more than just paying bills and obeying biological urges. That would be a great sermon. 
That's not what we're talking about this morning. We call this broken relationship between the human and the created order because it basically means that nothing is the way it's supposed to be. Everything's just a little off. Even our pleasures never quite satisfy the way they promised to. Something between us and the system, the matrix, is off. So though this passage encompasses a lot of brokenness, I decided to just treat with a small piece of it this morning. You will struggle and scratch a living from it. By sweat of your brow, you will have food until you return to the ground from which you were made. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you the inception of the rat race. Can you hear the depression in that verse? You will sweat and struggle and scratch to survive until you die. Does anybody kind of resonate some days with that passage? You will feel like this verse pretty much sums up the way life feels most of the time. Even when you have great and truly happy moments, it's like you're waiting for the other shoe to drop. This morning we're going to discuss what a redeemed relationship with the created order might look like. Because let's be honest, the treadmill of work, 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 die can't be what we were created for. But before we look at that redemption, let's look quickly at what I think is the, maybe the best assessment of this broken relationship in the entire Bible. Solomon was made king of Israel in the midst of kind of a contested succession. The decision of who would ascend the throne wasn't made until kind of David's final days. And the crowning of Solomon came with a great deal of intrigue and political wrangling and even violence. And into this uncertainty, um, God has this conversation with Solomon. I think God came to Solomon to kind of reassure him that he was the right king. He was God's intended king. But in the midst of this discussion, God offers Solomon anything he wants, and Solomon chooses understanding. We classically call it wisdom, but what Solomon actually asked for was understanding to be a good king. He knew to be a good king, he was going to need to understand. Solomon expands the kingdom mostly without war, builds palaces, whole cities, full industries, and, of course, the temple, which is an architectural masterpiece. Along with this, he wrote proverbs and wise sayings and observations. And then toward the end of his life, Solomon writes, in my opinion, a book about the broken relationship between us and the created order. It's called the book of Ecclesiastes. Honestly, probably my favorite book in the Bible. I'm just going to read the first nine verses of this book, and it kind of sums up what you find in the rest of the book. It goes like this. These are the words of the teacher, King David's son, who ruled in Jerusalem. Everything is meaningless, says the teacher, completely meaningless. What do people get from all their hard work under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth never changes. The sun rises, the sun sets then hurries around to rise again. The wind blows from the south, then it turns north. Around and around it goes, blowing in circles. Rivers run to the sea, but the sea is never full. Then the water returns again to the river and flows out to the sea. Everything is wearisome beyond description. No matter how much we see, we are never satisfied. No matter how much we hear, we are not content. History merely repeats itself. It's all been done before. Nothing under the sun is truly New. (laughs) Isn't that chipper? Welcome to church. 
Solomon goes on to explain all the stuff he tried that brought him to this conclusion. But the truth is, Ecclesiastes is a huge thesis expanding on what God told humans was going to happen in Genesis 3. You will work and eat until you die. And if we want to survey the Old Testament or even history, we can find this brokenness permeates everything. I love reading philosophy, and although I'm always fascinated with these great thinkers and their insights and analysis, and so much of it's compelling, but at the end of the day, the best philosophical and ethical teachings are merely what my dad liked to call a sugar-coated turd. Anybody familiar with kind of postmodern thought, postmodern philosophy? It stemmed from people basically going, you've been promising us things were going to get better forever, and they're just not getting any better. Kind of the modern era was built on if we find the right political system, if we find the right ideology, if we, if we throw off all these things that have created wars forever, if we just settle into the right frame of mind, everything will get better. We'll put an end to war. We'll put an end to sickness. We'll put an end to death. And by the end of the modern era, when the postmodern era kind of started, there were people going, we don't trust you anymore. Like, none of that worked. So if you want a memory verse, here's a great one. It comes from the PCV, the Pastor Chris version. Genesis 3, 17 through 19. Life is really hard, then you die. <laughs> All right, let's go to the table. No. <laughs> Kidding. Because praise God, Jesus came to redeem us from the curse. We don't have to live in the gloom that comes from sin. And I think we might all come to this relation differently, but I came as a nerd. I'm a nerd. Hello. My name's Chris. I'm a nerd. So I come at it like a nerd. So I'm going to do this. I did this last year when we started the, the Davidic Psalms. We were talking about the Psalms of David, and we, one of the first ones we did was Psalms 8, where David says this. When I look at the night sky and I see the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars you set in place, what are mere mortals that you should think about them, human beings that you should care for them? This is one of David's early psalms, kind of before he enters into the big drama with Saul and before he becomes king and before his life kind of falls apart. Things are still good for David. I I picture him being a shepherd. One of the days where he's grazed the sheep out too far to get them in to the fold at night, so he stays out with them, laying under the stars with the sheep. He looks up and writes poetry. And David is crazy impressed with what he sees up there. And luckily for us, we can see farther. We have telescopes and all the technology, and so we can see beyond what David saw. In fact, we know that right here in this very minute, we sit in Wellsville, just outside of Wellsville, right about there. If we zoom out a little bit, these satellites let us go a little farther. We can see where we are in relation to Kansas. Of course, you can't see Wellsville anymore. You really can't see our church, but you can see Kansas. And if we go out a little farther, you can see the the small outline of our state. You can kind of see the scheme. You can see Kansas, but obviously no longer Wellsville. Our church wouldn't even be a a dot on this map. And yet we can zoom out a little bit more. Go back even further. No more Kansas. Can't see Kansas. We can kind of see where the United States would be, right? There's Florida down there. We see where it would be in comparison to Mexico and Canada. Somewhere in that landmass is Open Table Community Church. 
Of course, that blue ball is pretty insignificant when you compare it to our sun. That's our, that's our earth. Somewhere in that tiny dot is that land mass. Somewhere in that land mass is Kansas and our church. But if you zoom out even more, our, our sun is unfortunately not big enough to show up on this picture. If you were to take a little pinprick and put it in there, our whole solar system would fit in that pinprick. But somewhere over there in what they call the habitable arm of the galaxy, over there in kind of the backwoods neck of the galaxy, you would find our little solar system. And our entire galaxy, it's, it's a good galaxy. It's a solid galaxy, kind of a sturdy blue-collar galaxy, an everyday galaxy. But it's just one of a billion galaxies like it in what we can see as the known universe. Incidentally, we don't think that our little world is at the center of the known universe. It's just our telescopes can only see so far in every direction. And so when you extend that out, you get a ball that we're in the middle of. But our whole galaxy is one of about a billion galaxies that we can see. And somewhere in the habitable arm of that galaxy is this little pinprick of a solar system. In the middle of that pinprick of a solar system is a sun that absolutely dwarfs our Earth. Somewhere on that blue dot of a dot is Open Table Community Church. Here's the deal. If you're looking for meaning outside of God in all that size, if you want to find some secular humanist meaning to life, if you want to find something other than God that makes you significant, I have no idea how you're going to do it. You are a single person in one of the five churches in a small town that's one of the 620 municipalities in Kansas. It's one of the 50 states in one of the 195 nations in our globe, which is a fairly small planet circling a really small star in one of a billion galaxies in our known universe. If you can find significance in that, other than the significance God has given us. I wish you joy of the hunt. Frankly, if the universe just sprung up, sprung up on its own, I can't find any significance in the greatest of human achievements if we're just random. Think of the biggest thing humans have ever done, the best things we've ever done. What could they possibly mean in all of that? Kingdoms rise, kingdoms fall, huge movements happen. And it's not even a blip on a blip on a blip in all that. Without God, you are a speck crawling on a speck, circling a speck that's in the back neck of a speck. And this is why I love Psalms 8 so much. David is looking at all that mess of greatness. And granted, he doesn't have all our tech, but what he does see, he asks the right question. What are mere mortals that you should think about them? Human beings that you should care for them. That's the right question. When you look at all that size, the question is, who am I? What are mere mortals in all of that? We're not even ants. Who are we? 
How could you look at that picture of the whole known universe and not ask that question? In all that greatness, who am I? And here's what makes David great. See, Solomon sensed the depth of that question. And he looked for every possible answer to it. He hunted for every possible answer to it. And David instead takes a truly brave move. He says, yet you made them a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. You gave them charge of everything you made, putting all things under their authority. David recognizes in the midst of all that size, my only significance is that God gave me significance. I'm not big. You take God off the throne and we are nothing. We're less than nothing. The reason we're something is because God, as David says, crowned us with glory and honor and gave us charge over everything. So the way David found what he found to fight this meaninglessness of life is he went back before the curse. This is original design. What did God say? Let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the livestock, all the wild animals on earth, and the small animals that scurry on the ground. This is original design language. David, what he does when he feels that meaningless is he goes back before God saying, you're going to scratch out a living, you're going to barely make it, and then you're going to go back to the dust. David goes before that. And he goes, you crowned us with glory. You gave us your image. He goes back and chooses to believe that original language that happened before. He looks into the emptiness and says, I choose to believe you made me in your image and to do your work. And this is where I think it gets truly good. Have you ever heard someone tell you you need to believe in Jesus? And it sounds kind of vague and you don't even really know what that means. Like, does that mean you just have to believe there was a dude named Jesus? He painted my house once. I'm, I'm serious. My painter's name is Jesus. I'm not just being, I'm not just being racial. Come on. <laughs> my daughter-in-law is Mexican. I'm allowed to do that. No, I'm not. I'm serious though. My painter's name is Jesus. Anyway, or do we believe that there was a Jesus who did everything the Bible said he did? Exactly the way it says. Or do we believe that he personally had me in mind when he did all those things and that's what I'm supposed to believe? Or do we believe that belief in Jesus means that we believe in his ethical and and and, and philosophical lifestyle and we have we prove our faith by trying to emulate that? Or does believing in Jesus mean we sign on to the whole religious system thing and become a Christian and join Christendom? I'm not going to answer any of those questions today, but I, we, we are going to talk about that in Lent, so make sure you come back. Let me suggest that a good place to start believing is that God is not aloof. He's very active in our lives, in his love for us. In all that hugeness, he's not aloof. He didn't set the universe spinning and step away. He's very active in our lives. You could argue that we were created with a purpose and, and then he just let that purpose go and he just stepped back but, and left us to scratch and 
dig until we survive, to survive until we can no longer survive and then we die in our meaninglessness. But even David looked up and saw beyond that. He looked to original design and he found inspiration. You could argue that, that maybe God stays afar, but if you did, if you, if, you, if you argue that God just spun the universe into existence and stepped away, you cannot also believe in Jesus. Because Jesus says the opposite. Jesus says God is very engaged, incredibly engaged in the human narrative. If Jesus' life, death, resurrection tells us anything, it's that God has not abandoned us. That God has not stood afar off. He's not stayed aloof. If redemption means anything, it means that like David, we can look past the seeming emptiness back to original design and, and choose to believe that. And choose to believe that we have purpose. This is the true statement that makes all the difference. Incidentally, Solomon did make his way around to this by the end of his dissertation. He says, that's the whole story. Here now is my final conclusion. Fear God and obey his commands, for this is everyone's duty. After trying everything he could try, after going, there has to be some meaning in something I do, he comes to the conclusion it's God. It's got to be God. So what David saw in art, Solomon saw through scientific method. I just test this thing over and over and over again and came to the same conclusion. I tried everything on earth to find meaning, and trust me, without God there is none. We say all the time that faith is the currency of the kingdom, and that sounds so vague and ethereal, but through this entire study, we've looked at what it might look like to redeem these broken relationships. And at the root of each one of them is faith. Our relationship with God was broken. Our human instinct was to hide from God when he showed up like Adam did. But Paul comes in and says, because of the work of Jesus, you are at peace with God. You have peace with God. Your job is to believe that. Our relationship with ourselves was broken. We feel shame and we no longer like the way God made us. But Paul tells us in Ephesians 2 that we are God's masterpiece. We have been specifically made and chosen to do the work he has for us. Your job is to believe that. Our relationship with the other was broken. We separate ourselves from other people and we embrace every wall and category that perpetuates that separation. It's been that way since Adam said it was the woman you gave. And again, Paul tells us that because of the work of Jesus, there is no Jew, there is no Gentile, there is no female, there is no male, there is no slave, there is no free, there is no other. Your job is to believe that. So guess what your job is when it comes to living in the the redemption that Jesus purchased for you, especially when it concerns the broken relationship between you and the created order. Your job is to believe that you have a purpose. There's something bigger than just scrabbling through life until you die. You have a purpose. Like David, you can look at the greatness of the universe and say, I'm either nothing, a speck on a speck on a speck, or I was created in the image of God with purpose. I'm a logic nut, and the way I see it, it has to be one or the other. If God did not give you purpose in all of that size, then you mean nothing. 
feel like logically it's one or the other. You either say, I'm nothing, and no matter what I try, I can never be more, or you say, I am created in the image of God with purpose. But if you do believe in that you were created by God to do the work of God, we fell from that greatness. We did. We went our own way. But Jesus stepped down from heaven, entered our mess, purchased our redemption on the cross, and in so doing, he restored us to real purpose, giving your life real meaning. And it's your job to believe this. Throughout the study, we've been dipping into Paul's writings to see what he has to say about these relationships. And honestly, Paul's writings are so saturated with this one, it's hard to pick one. It's so common in his letters that I, just, I struggle to nail down a single pericope where he talks about this. We could use Colossians where he says, work willingly at whatever you do as though you are working for the Lord rather than people. I mean, in that context, there is no meaningless work. There's no such thing as meaningless work. Paul does not say, when you do church work or ministry or meaningful work, do it as if unto Jesus. This is maybe the hardest lesson to get through to people. There is no meaningless work. Because it's not work that has meaning or doesn't have meaning. You have meaning. You have purpose. You are meaningful. God didn't say, let us make some work in our image. And then we'll try to really encourage people to do that work. He didn't say that. Let us make them people in our image. That's where the meaning is. Let's give people meaning. I mean, think about the most meaningful job you can imagine. The most life-changing, world-changing job you can think of. Imagine what a huge impact it could have on society. And picture it in the context of this. You have meaning because God said you have meaning. God told us to bear his image. Whatever you do, no qualifications, whatever you do, do it as though you're personally working for Jesus. This attitude of Paul's is why when he was contemplating his own death and the meaning of his life, he says, for to me, living means living for Christ and dying is even better. But if I live, I can do more fruitful work for Christ. So I don't really know which is better. Paul can't distinguish a difference between living and living for Christ. To him, they mean the same thing. If I live, it's for Christ. If he lives, it's with purpose. It's unimaginable for Paul to imagine living without meaning, living without purpose. In the light of what Christ has done, there is no existence where Paul might scratch out a living and struggle until I finally go back to the dust from where I came. That's not even in Paul's thinking. Paul says, if I live, it's for Jesus. I live with a full purpose. And if I die, that's even better. Paul is living in a redeemed relationship to his purpose. So how do we respond to this? Obviously, this series is more than just what is broken. and It's what can the church do to help redeem it? We've been asking, why church? What, what role does this group of people play in helping us to walk in the redemption that Jesus brought, bought with his sacrifice? 
There's a million ways we can serve this relationship, but I want to focus on one this morning. Sabbath. Sabbath is the anti-rat race. We rest. We choose for a time to stop clawing and stop scratching and stop digging. We just be and we reflect the image of God in which we were made. In fact, listen to the Old Testament command to Sabbath. This is from Deuteronomy, which we talked a few weeks about. It's kind of Moses' conclusion, his kind of wrap-up of the whole rest of the law. Anybody ever read scientific studies? They always start with an abstract, which is kind of, hey, before you get into the deep stuff, here's basically what this is going to say. Deuteronomy is Moses' abstract. And in this passage, he's recapping the Ten Commandments. He says, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day of rest dedicated to the Lord your God. On that day, no one in your household may do any work. This includes you, your sons, your daughters, your male and female servants, your oxen, your donkeys, your livestock, and any foreigners living among you. All your male and female servants must rest as you do. And this is the part I love. Remember that you were once slaves in Egypt, but the Lord your God brought you out with his strong hand and powerful arm. That is why the Lord your God has commanded you to rest on the Sabbath day. Let me read that last part one more time. Remember that you were once slaves in Egypt, but the Lord your God brought you out with his strong hand and powerful arm. That, that is why the Lord your God has commanded you to rest on the Sabbath day. This sounds spiritual and grand and kind of theatric. But when we strip that down to what he's actually saying, it sounds like this. Remember when you worked and worked and worked and never got a break? Don't do that. Take a break. That's what he's saying. Remember when you were slaves in Egypt and you didn't get a break? They just drove you and drove you and drove you? I'm telling you, Sabbath, rest, don't do that. Don't get caught up on that hamster wheel. Change a few words and it sounds like this. Remember, you were once slaves to your schedule and your calendar and soccer practice and all the meetings and traffic and chaos. But the Lord your God sent Jesus to deliver you with a strong arm, a powerful hand. That is why the Lord has commanded you to rest on the Sabbath day. Sabbath reminds us that we were created for more than just working until we die. When you sit and do nothing and produce nothing and earn nothing and serve no one, when all you do is just sit there and reflect the image of God and love the people around you, you are fulfilling your created purpose. And sometimes nothing can remind you that scrabbling in the dirt to make a living until you die was not your created purpose like sitting and doing nothing. And that old curse will pull on you. This feels like a waste of time. I could be getting something done. My to-do list is so long. I can't believe we're doing nothing. I'm getting further and further behind here. The Sabbath makes us go, I was not created to scratch and claw and sweat until I die. That's the curse, and I have been redeemed. Sabbath. We Sabbath. So here at Open Table Community Church, we believe in Sabbath. We believe that rest is not only important, it's redemptive. It's part of how we claim the redemption that's ours.
as we rest. So I hope I'm not undoing like all the good work we did last series, rounding up volunteers, but we have no desire to burn anybody out. We have no desire to overwork people. We love seeing people get involved. We love seeing people like doing what their heart loves to do. And we believe that, that church is a thing we're supposed to make happen as a community. But please don't ever like work or serve here if you're not getting some rest. If you, even if you're scheduled and it's Sunday morning and you are just beat, call up Brent and say, dude, I can't do it today. If you're in a kid's ministry, we'll bring the kids up here with us. I can talk loud. I'll talk over the kids if I have to. There's nothing so important that you have to burn yourself out and kill yourself to do it. We do not believe that. And I am preaching it myself here. I'm, hi, my name is Chris, and I'm a hypocrite. We do never want to get on the hamster wheels of church of bigger, stronger, faster, more, 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 more. We don't want to do that. This is a marathon, not a sprint. We never want to get so caught up in making the next Sunday happen that we're hurting and burning people out. We believe in rest. I'd love to see us get a little bit legalistic about this. I think that'd be fun. I wish new people came in and we were like, I don't care if you drink, smoke, cuss, gamble, or dance. and I don't really care about your political affiliation or your orientation. Are you resting? <laughs> I think that'd be fun. It may be extreme, but I don't think we can redeem this broken relationship with the created order unless we stop. Let our souls catch up to our bodies. And remember that we weren't created for the rat race. That was part of the fall. We, we live in redemption. We weren't created for the rat race. So one last recap. Why church? Because as followers of Jesus, you are at peace with God. Believe that. Don't hide. As a follower of Jesus, you are God's masterpiece. Believe that. Reject shame. As followers of Jesus, we are all one. Believe that. Don't divide. As followers of Jesus Christ, your life has meaning. Believe that. Work and rest with purpose. Let's go to the table.